others. If there's one thing that we're good at is knowing our faults. If we think something's not working, we're pretty quick to stop and try something different. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organizations, and communities. Hello and welcome to Coffee Pods. Our guest this week is bringing an entrepreneurial flavor to the conversation. I'm talking about Adam Schwab. Adam is a best-selling author and award-winning entrepreneur and has built one of the most profitable e-commerce businesses in Australia. We're going to talk about how he managed in just five years with zero funding to grow a business to more than $350 million turnover with more than 400 employees. He's been top of the BRW Rich List many times over. He's been on the BRW Young Rich List since 2014 and he's got a really pragmatic and reflective kind of considered opinion on how to do business and kind of a critical lens to to the world around him. I think you'll learn a lot from this podcast and this is a really brilliant one, particularly for anyone who's thinking about how to move from idea to concept to scaling something. Here's Adam. So Adam Schwab, it is wonderful to have you here on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We were just reminiscing about um, both being recovering lawyers in two different ways. And uh, it was sort of making the comment that it's funny because I think people either think you're, you're cut for that traditional world of work and perhaps the legal life or something else, or you're an entrepreneur. Were you a born entrepreneur? How did you go being a, you know, were you wool in sheep's clothing in the legal industry? Great question. I think I was a, a, a wolf in wolf's clothing. I think everybody at Free Hills knew I wasn't going to be there forever. Uh, I was spent a lot of time doing social club stuff and, and uh, stuff that wasn't necessarily deeply legal. Uh, but you make, make great friends. And you, I think what you learn out of law is really good precision. Uh, and that sort of helps. And you learn not to get bullied uh, by people who, who maybe have a legal background or whatnot. So, yeah, I was never going to be a great lawyer. Uh, I, didn't, I don't think me or Jeremy, my co-founder, knew what, what we'd do. We've, mm. we've done a few things over the journey, but we always – we started our first business when we were sort of 17, our first sort of semi-proper business selling um, assignments to, to students and then did the same at law school selling law notes. Always. I was very grateful for you at <laughs> law school, so thank you for starting that trove of people that did that. We weren't the first, but we were probably the first to really professionalise it. So I sold CDs out of the law bookstore till the dean wow. realised and shut me down. But – uh, so we, we sort of made it turn from what was a cottage industry to a bit more professional. Uh, so one stage, I think I calculated about 10% of students at Monash Uni were using my notes, which is wow. ironic because I was never a particularly amazing student, but um, was quite good at making notes. But so in terms of, I think we always felt that we would do something business-like at some point, but I think we started, the way we started was super serendipitous and our first business was a backpacker apartment business. We saw it because I had friends who were from Scotland and, uh, we're staying in a really terrible apartment. I thought we can do this better. So I think all our businesses have, have come from, this is a, whenever someone young who wants to be an entrepreneur says, well, what should I do? I said, well, find a problem, a real life problem that you've experienced and solve that problem. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of how we 
our very first business was solving a problem for backpackers. They had nowhere nice to stay, so let's make a nice place for them. We went to corporate and then went to like small businesses and then hotels. So it's sort of been a journey of trying to solve people's problems and do it in a in the most efficient possible way. Nice. And tell me, you know, the journey from the the early days in the backpacking industry to what you're doing now, how did that kind of hop, step and a jump yeah. take place? So we went from M&A lawyer at, at a pretty big firm to didn't have a huge amount of capital. So we, we thought, what can we do that doesn't need much capital? And it was leasing apartments and sub-licensing them to essentially well, so used the word backpackers. There were more people from overseas who were staying for three or six or 12 months. Yeah. So couldn't get their own lease and didn't want to buy their own furniture. And we sort of effectively unsecuritized the lease in a way and let people uh, stay and then realized that wasn't the most sustainable business. So moved to a service or corporate apartments. Uh, again, not a very internet-y business. It was all pretty much offline, mm. uh, but it was a nice cash flow business. We bought a handful of properties. This is back in 07, pre-GFC. Didn't like debt, so sold them a couple of years later and had this million-dollar seed fund that we'd yeah, wow. windfalled into, not through any skill or just for buying and selling these, these apartments. So dumbest money you could ever have and instead we didn't want to sort of buy a house ourselves we wanted to well, what can we do what can, how can we roll the dice and then someone across e-commerce uh so it was sort of web 2.0 was was going and uh this is back in 09 and i was in the uk for a couple of weeks and saw a business called top table which has now been bought by booking.com uh but it's basically a, a way for people to book restaurants online with a discount attached uh so i thought that could be a good idea nothing dimmy didn't exist in australia so i thought well, why don't we give that a crack in Australia, we again never had an internet business, never had an online business, didn't know how to get customers, didn't know how to product manage, didn't know how to do anything really. We thought we'd give it a crack. How hard could it be? Um, turns out it was pretty hard. Um, <laughs> but we ended up. I was thinking nothing would ever happen as an entrepreneur if you went a little bit delusional about yeah. how hard it was going to be to get it done. A reality distortion on yourself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we started that business, and then a couple months later, Jez, my co-founder, was in was doing a free course. At, somehow scammed a free course at Harvard and was in the US and saw Groupon launch. And that was sort of the daily, the first of the daily deals business, the first business to a billion dollars, fastest business to a billion dollars in the States. So I thought this could be a pretty good business and nobody in Australia had done it. So mm. I pivoted from that restaurant thing before we launched to this deals thing and started the deals thing and started working on it. And then all these other deals companies launched. So we quickly had to go to market and sort of a few months later, July, 2010. So we'd go from back apartments to corporate apartments to temporarily doing this restaurant thing, which we went back to later, but then to, to the daily deal stuff. Uh, so, and that, that was our first sort of foray into e-commerce. We've then pivoted a couple of times since then till we found, till we got to Luxury Escapes essentially, which has been our sort of longest term and probably most sustainable business. I find it really interesting. You, you're sort of saying, we didn't know this, we didn't know that. Also, it's interesting, you kind of in an e-commerce business, you're not a technologist or a marketer by background yourself. How have you kind of approached that kind of um, on-the-job learning, so to speak, yeah. and thrown yourself into these areas that you didn't, you haven't seen that as a barrier? And I think that's a really impressive part of how you and Jez have approached the, the business journey you've been on. It's a great point. And I think we were lucky to have that six-year apprenticeship in our offline business because you learn a heap through that. And even, let's say, going to the e-commerce where we knew nothing about affiliate publishing or SEM or SEO or Facebook, all that kind of stuff, but no one does really. Mm. So uh, well, now, now people kind of do, but certainly back then nobody did you weren't really competing. You're competing on a level playing field where nobody really knew anything. So it wasn't so bad. And you kind of, we kind of fumbled our way through We're pretty, we're pretty quick learners. If there's one thing that we're good at is knowing our faults. We've always been fairly, um, at a fairly not super high opinion of our own ability. So we, if we see, if we think something's not working, we're pretty quick to stop and try something different. We don't tend to flog a dead horse for that long. Yeah. So um, we're very sort of malleable and, um, and both Jess and I take criticism pretty well. Which I think helped us sort of ride the bumps, I guess. 
you're the author of a book called Pigs at the Trough, Lessons from Australia's Decade of Corporate Greed. And I was wondering, you know, kind of that piece around learning what you don't want to do and how significant kind of doing the, the research, I imagine, for that book was in then helping you think about the culture you wanted to create it in the companies you've built. It's weird how people tend to lionize and having a sort of discussion, argument on LinkedIn with people who are lionizing. I like, got oh, Jack Welsh, used to run General Electric, who was mm-hmm. a terrible guy. Um, people lionize him because he was apparently a good businessman, but he was horrendous bloke, um, <laughs> cheating on his wife and stealing from business and fraud, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Not a particularly ethical um, But people lionize these business people. And I think what the Pink the Trough book really did was try and show some of the greed and some of these executives have been lionized and, and beatified. I've always found it strange how people look at CEOs, for example, who run businesses and think how, how amazing these guys are when they seem like just allocating capital. Um, so I've always come with a very pro-shareholder approach. And I could be in a business where I'm a shareholder and a, mm. I'm not the only shareholder, I'm an A-shareholder and, a, and a, I guess a, a CEO as well. I try and come with a different approach. There's a very pro-shareholder approach and also a very pro-customer approach and a pro-long-term approach. I think a lot of CEOs don't take. And the, and the book was really a book about agency cost, a book about how shareholders hire CEOs who do what's in their interest, not what's in mm. shareholder interest. And they look at and the way bonus structures are short, so short-term, even long-term bonus structures are still short-term in many ways. Uh, so it was a bit about that, but I think it, what that then, how that transfers into our, how we run the business, we try and run the business as ethically as possible. So mm-hmm. how, how do we treat customers, how to treat clients, how do we treat our team? And that's a, I think we know if we, we get those three things right, hopefully the business becomes profitable in the next one, two, more profitable in the next one, two, three, five years. So it's doing the sort of small things. And it, you look through some of the, the most successful businesses and it's, it's not that easy to find people who have, remain good through the journey mm. um, and that's what I think we want to try and be and not do the wrong thing and maybe you've got some people that don't like you but we want to try and make sure our customers like us and staff like working for us and um, our player clients like working with us. And kind of almost bracing for that like and I think that's a very fair observation that uh, power on the whole and be that you know in a corporate setting or any other um, people don't tend to fare well <laughs> with time in terms of their ability to hold up to kind of the ethical and community standards how do you almost prepare for that in, in the choices that you make around who you surround yourself with, who you hire? Or how do you kind of safeguard against that happening? It's a really good question. I think it's, it's tough. I think we, we tend to hire for culture. And culture is a weird word and I hate using it, but we, or for fit. So we want a certain type of person. Uh, we'll default to a person who we think is a really good person or a person who might be a really smart person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tends to – and we also want someone who's got heaps of initiative because we're, we're – Whilst we're a sort of $350 million turnover business, we don't necessarily always act like one. We're very startup-y in nature. Uh, so there's certain type of people who do really well, people heaps of, heaps of initiative who uh, own mistakes, who do who go and just do stuff, go really well with our business, and people who want to proceed. But some people who love the sort of structure of bureaucracy, which is fine if that's who you are, probably don't do too well in mm-hmm. our business. So it's just trying to make sure that the fit's right. And yeah. we don't want to hire somebody who isn't going to enjoy working with us either. I found it interesting. You mentioned earlier you've never been a really big fan of three to five year plans and much more kind of short term focused, and yet holding that intention with your comment around being kind of long term focused in another sense. How do you kind of balance that in a year to year way? A good point to pick out on the anomaly. So short term focused in terms of what we do, mm-hmm. in a sense, not strategically, but in terms of tactically, what are we doing? And let's get what we do right. Let's focus on the things that are going to make the biggest difference. But let's do that in a way that will create long term value. Mm-hmm. So in a way, so the classic examples: Do you run a deal? 
do I want an offer for a hotel that I don't think isn't that great a hotel, but will make us lots of money because it's a cheap price point, but I know our customers in a year's time won't have a great experience. We don't want to do that. We want to try and make sure we have the best possible product and that yep. people who buy it will more, much more likely to buy again. So it's, it's sort of stuff. Or do you, someone's had a bad experience as a customer and it's pretty rare, but we don't have control over their end experience. So some 5% of our customers may have a bad experience. So five out of hundred. How do, what do we do for those five? Are we like booking.com and just ignore their emails or do we give them a, refund or credit or make, make sure we do the right thing. And it's that sort of stuff that is Makes a long-term difference. value that's going to hit us even this year, but it should pay off in lifetime value. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about scaling um, because one of the things I think is remarkable about your business journey is how quickly the company scaled. Um, you mentioned you're about a $350 million business now, which is year what of the company? Uh, luxury scale is about five years. Five, because uh, I was a reading. Years of, of before that of other e-commerce business. Yeah. So by year three, I think it was, you're already on target to hit 200 million at that point. You had a staff of about 400. What tips have you got for people listening on how to grow from concept through to, to that sort of scale successfully? Funnily enough, when we grew, if you look at sort of how we grew in the first three years, it was actually a lot through acquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably wasn't the smartest acquisitions. We probably made some, I think all of us would agree, we did some pretty dumb acquisitions and that grew out our top line and our, certainly our staff count and hence why we haven't grown if it looks like we haven't grown as much it's actually a bit misleading because our core like coach business has grown very steadily but we've sold some other businesses that got us up initially but actually weren't particularly great businesses yeah, so the core business things. has been much more linear um so i think what we certainly learned we should you buy businesses that are really core to you and buy businesses that are growing not buy businesses that are cheap and shrinking it's the old warren buffett quote that I've read a hundred times but should have listened to more carefully is better off buying a great business for a fair price and a crappy business for a cheap price. Yeah. And we bought a lot of companies for cheap prices and paid the price multiple times and learned the hard way. So I think if you had how should we have scaled, we should have scaled by focusing on what we did really well, which was mm. our travel business, um, rather than being distracted by a bunch of other stuff that wasn't so good. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that you're still quite startup-y, which I think is really impressive because I think one of the things a lot of uh, companies struggle with when they start to grow is actually losing that innovative um, kind of heartbeat of the place, that ability to be agile and responsive. How have you kind of protected that? I think it's good and bad. I think that the good thing about being startup is, yeah, you're agile, you move fast. Yeah. The bad thing is everything's everything's a bit messy, you know, <laughs> and I don't mean to, in terms of how the office looks, but it, there's lots of things happening. You haven't got great structures. You've often, often got a really flat management team, which we do. Um, often a lot is left to it sort of, a few at that level. Um, so there's, there's pros and cons. We're probably a bit of a kid in an adult's body to some extent. So I think as a business, we're, we're maturing and we're getting a, a, a management team's got an enormous way in the last year from being pretty light on to being pretty much complete mm-hmm. um, now or should be pretty soon. So um, I think it's about getting the right pair. We've been bootstrapped from day one as well. So we didn't hire superstars like yourself day one because you just couldn't afford them. Um, so it's taken us sort of five years to get to the team VC back businesses get to in day 10. So mm-hmm. it's, we've had a strange route. We've had a lot of luck along the way as well. So we happen to be in the right place at the right time, use newspapers really fortunately. So I think like any sort of, uh, and being in the right country and, and when, when the dollar's going out, all that kind of stuff helped us out at the mm-hmm. right time to give us enough scale to, to grow. And so we had a, a lot of things worked in our favour, but I think it's hard to pinpoint one or two things that, that we do that's any better than anyone else because stuff's just kind of fall into place. I think that's probably making light of how, how intentional you've been with the different decisions you've made over the journey. But I did want to ask you, what, what's been the hardest part of, of the say, the five-year journey or the yeah. journey in business so far? Yeah. Like what, what do you almost um, look back and go, geez, I'm, I'm 
that's been that's been really that's made me the entrepreneur that I am in many ways. I don't think I've been asked that before. There's been a couple of moments that were pretty. We've had a pretty good run, mm-hmm. so I don't think we've blame too much. But it's been like I haven't had a day off in eight years, wow. so it's pretty steady. Like it's not as I'm, I'm not working best mega hours. I'm not working till two a.m. But you're working to ten hours a day every day, not weekends, but you doing something on there. So it's the constant grind mm-hmm. even when you're away, which most people do these days in fairness, but um, there wouldn't be day where I'm working, not working six hours. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's constant, um, but that's fine. That's sort of what you, you become institutionalised in a way to do that. Uh, but there was a couple of moments. There's one moment in our original backpacker apartments business room was got shut down by a particular competitor who also rented us apartments. So it was a bit of a uh, tricky. Contri- uh, conflict. Um, we got, I was in VCA to get some QCs and we won that. Fortunately, we were able to sort of stay of execution and change the business model and survive. That was pretty, I was 26 at the time, pretty worrying. Um, and probably another time we, we bought a business, this is in 11, 12. So our business has always been profitable, pretty much always been profitable. We bought a business that wasn't, it was in a worse state than we thought, almost took us down just cash flow wise. So we were one of the few businesses that ever go broke, always making a profit. Uh, fortunately, we got through that and then started flying after that. So it was, there was a, there was a couple of moments that probably like two weeks and two weeks over for a 14-year journey where it was a, probably a little bit stressful, but we did not get too stressed generally. Um, but those two moments were, were pretty tough. Mm-hmm. But I think if we, everybody's had some sort of moment and probably we've probably had it luckier than most. How do you personally cope both with the workload but also with the stress? Because I think that's probably part of the entrepreneurial experience we often don't talk about is, yeah. you know, there's the reality of 10-hour-a-day grinds, being on the call all the time, you know, things being able to come out of left field and completely throw you off kilter and, you know, needing to be incredibly responsive. How have you kind of looked after yourself so that you're able to give what you need to give to your people, to the business, to all the demands on your oh, time? I think it kind of is. It kind of just is what it is, uh, and this is what I'm used to, and and what. So uh, coming out of professional services, you, you sort of see it as well. So anybody come out of law or banking, especially banking, which is even more, much more grueling. But um, when you're when you're working sort of nine to ten as a lawyer, working sort of nine to seven or eight to seven is pretty. It's actually pretty good. Mm. Uh, it's a bit more constant, but uh, so I don't, I don't think that has been a huge issue. And I think is I, I think I kind of just like to do stuff. So if I wasn't working, I'd be writing a book or writing articles or whatnot. So I think you're the same. So I think you just like to always, I get bored fairly quickly. So yeah, it hasn't, hasn't been a problem. I don't, I don't really get stressed by that. It's pretty rare. I get stressed out by something at work. I feel like there's so much, there's almost a cult of entrepreneurship nowadays. Like everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone thinks they're going to make a million dollars overnight. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the part of kind of starting a business, running a business that we don't talk about you know is there kind of an element because we've glorified it as you yeah. said we're lionizing kind of some of these yeah. business figures and leaders but what's the bit often that we fail to talk about or appreciate or, or maybe give the weight that we need to the obvious ones the people who don't make it there's a lot of people who have great business ideas great businesses and they just don't quite get it because they run out of cash which is the most common that valley of death where you've got a product and it's working we just run out of cash mm-hmm. um, so that's 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 a really big one but i think it's like so when we started our our e-commerce business, I was working full-time, didn't get paid for three or four years of putting cash into the business. And even now I get a salary that's probably halfway down our list. So it's certainly not the barrel of riches that, that people probably think it is. And so we've had an exit from from the menu lock business. So I got a bit lucky there, but, but certainly from our core business, we've only just started paying dividends now. This is seven years sort of down the journey. Mm. So it's it's a long journey. It's not necessarily – there's very few Mark Zuckerbergs. Yeah. Um, most people aren't. Uh, so it's a you got you sort of be willing to not be motivated by 
material stuff and my money. I think you sort of see those entrepreneurs who want to buy fancy expensive cars and big houses. And if they haven't sold their business, I sort of wonder how that is compatible. So I think you've got to sacrifice a lot in terms of, and me and Jess are both very sort of frugal guys. So it hasn't really phased us. But um, if you want to live a fancy sort of Paris Hilton life, I wouldn't say starting a business is the best way to do to it. To do it, yeah. I found it really curious reading about the business that last year you chose to actually open a bricks and mortar shop, like which seems kind of counterintuitive to the way that business is going. Uh, What made you decide to go, like for an e-commerce business to go bricks and mortar, kind of feels like the opposite of what all the bricks and mortar businesses are trying to do. Funny enough, it actually happens more than you think. I was into a car restriction podcast this morning with the guy who who runs First Dibs, which is a fantastic business out of States, and the amount of online businesses that do have offline so Warby Parker and Amazon and mm. all these guys have online. So we, we certainly offline. We certainly weren't the first and won't be the last. Uh, for us, it was an activation customer acquisition play. Uh, and if you think we, we sell a product that's relatively expensive at $2,000 average basket size. We're selling it overseas holidays, so to Bali, Thailand, Maldives. There's a lot of trust involved in that. So someone's A, spending a lot. B, they're going on experience to a, a non-Australian country. Yep. Um, so there's a couple of big trust hurdles you've got to jump over there. So buying over the internet's, Great, a lot of people do it. But there's certainly a big cohort of people who mm. don't want to buy over the internet, want to speak, want to eyeball somebody. So that was really the sort of rationale. How, how would we go? And the problem for us is we're not natural retailers. So whilst I'd love to set up 50 stores, it's probably not our core competency. And we've got other, probably a lot of line fruit to finish online first before we roll that out. But it's certainly something that we thought it was success. We'd love to do it again. We'd love to roll out across all of Australia and potentially Asia as well. But it's, it's not top of our list. It's probably two years, three years down the track before I can really focus on uh, okay. omni, Omni-type um, setup. But it was it was really, it was, I thought it was a great experience. What do you look for in a business? Because you said there's plenty of good ideas floating around. What is it that makes you part with capital? That's a great question. Um, certainly the people behind it. The, the team is, is a really big driver of it. I like tend to like marketplaces. And I think you learn from, from our business. We're a sort of a heavily curated marketplace, but we have to fight for our supplies. We have to negotiate every hotel deal we do. It takes six months, 12 months, which is which is hard. So sort of you learn from the parts of your business that are hard what you don't want in a business. So what, what I what I love to see is sort of really easy scalability. Once you build a platform, can you can you scale that out? Is it and is it really solving a problem? Um, and is there good margin? So there's a few sort of key key issues. So one of the businesses I invest in is a business called Health Engine. So I, can't, I wasn't an early investor in Health Engine, but uh, those guys solve a really good problem with going to a GP. I, I hate going to a few, but, you, but I hate going to the doctor. You've got to make a booking, which is always annoying. You've got to wait for the doctor to serve you. Then you've got to go there and they're in, you're in there for two minutes getting a prescription. Then you, um, you've got to go to the pharmacist. You've got to line up and you've got to pay there. And the whole thing takes like three hours and costs 100 bucks. It's a complete waste of time. This should all be done over your phone in two minutes with the Excuse me, delivered to you. That's what I'd love to see that mm. vision for that business. And it's a significant problem for everyone and they can solve, they can solve it all. So that's why I love that business. And they had a great market share and a great platform. Or you look at a business like Amazing Co, which uh, I invested in and, and these guys effectively automating human experiences. So starting with kids' parties, which are really hard to organize, but then they're doing wine tours and couples events and, and corporate events. And they've taken one really simple problem and solved it in many different ways. Yeah, wow. That's great. And tell me, is there a lesson you've learnt the hard way through kind of making a mistake with an investment? Um, there's one business I'm investing in that the economics probably weren't quite right and these guys took some bad advice from some bankers and, and spent more money and has invested a bit into it. They, they've got it right now, but it took them a while and the economics weren't quite there. So I also like the idea and I like the guy who, who ran it. Um, 
I'm also going to focus on do the economics work. Yeah, just stack up. Yeah, and it, they probably do now, but at the time it didn't. So it probably wasn't the right investment at the right time. But uh, ultimately, it's probably I've been investing probably three years, and it's just too early in the journey to know how well or badly I've done. Um, they all could fail. They all could go really well. Uh, it's just too hard to know. If you were to go back to you kind of on, I guess, the starting blocks of being prepared to, to step into business, you know, as a, as a lawyer branching out, what bit of advice would you give yourself back there? Yeah. Well, I've got two pieces of advice I give to people who ask, and I don't know how people ever listen to me or not, but my two pieces of advice are, and this came from, from experience as well, is don't force an idea. So now because entrepreneurship is kind of cool, people want to leave that lawyer job and start something, which is which is great, but it can be a bit of a motivational. I'll just I'll quit my job and I'll think of something. To me, that's never sort of the way to go about it. It's find a problem, a real-life problem that applies to you or people close to you and solve that problem. Uh, so let the idea come to you. Don't force it. That's sort mm-hmm. of that's tip one. And tip two is once you've found that idea, then put 100% in. So then quit your job and put your skin on the line and, and don't do it on weekends and at night. Actually do it properly. Uh, so sort of the two go in, in a way, contradict, but in a way are in tandem. So find that right idea. Mm-hmm. When you find that right idea, you really go hard. Don't go sort of semi-hard on a crappy idea. Mm. Yep. I like that. Um, and I was interested to know how it is that you manage your time. Cause I think that's one of the things I always marvel at with a lot of entrepreneurs is no one's telling you how to do it. Like you're in charge entirely of what your week looks like, yeah. um, what priorities get tended to, what doesn't, what kind of rule of thumb have you got for how to, how to achieve your goals? Yeah. I'm probably, a, I probably do too much stuff sometimes. Um, and the, if people want to speak to me, I tend to do it. Um, here, Carolyn Creswell, who's an amazing entrepreneur, speaks. She doesn't tend to. She she's so busy. She manages her time really, really closely. Doesn't really see sort of outside people. It's probably how I should be, but never never really got there. Um, but I manage my own diary, so I try and keep stuff clear. But but ultimately, you also got to give back to young sort of entrepreneurs who, who you might be able to help. So it's kind of balancing, making sure you work sixty, seventy hours a week in your business, but making sure you can sort of give back a bit in some way. Mm-hmm. So. It's a bit of a balancing act, but uh, I, I'm, I think there's two people there's clean boxing, but clean boxes and messy boxes, and I tend to have a pretty clean inbox. Mm-hmm. So I don't like to have email, more than a couple of emails in my inbox. There's a bit of a reminder. So I tend to be pretty um, pretty concerned on keeping on top of things. And I think that's one thing I sort of learned at Free Hills was nothing worse when you're doing work for a partner and you work all night to get something and they sit on their desk for a week. So I've always wanted to be really yeah. careful. If, if any, any, any person who works for us ever gives me anything, I turn it around to them really quickly within sort of an hour. I don't want somebody having to wait for me just because they're a bit more junior in the business. Because ultimately we're all, uh, I'm employed by the business. I may be a shareholder, but I've got to do the right thing. I like that philosophy. Not keeping people waiting. That's very refreshing, <laughs> particularly for people that have worked in a legal profession because that's certainly not how it works there. Yeah. 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 But so, certainly you get that from experience. There's nothing worse when yeah. a partner sits on something or when a, when a partner doesn't get back to you or, or investment banking, when a managing director doesn't get back to you, it's always pretty frustrating. And you mentioned that, you know, we, we lionise these business figures and often, unfortunately, the person underneath isn't always that great. Who, who do you look up to? Who have you kind of, I guess, tacked after when it comes to thinking about the sort of leader you want to be in business? Oh, I think everybody looks at Warren Buffett to a degree. So I'm yeah. not a massive Buffett fan, but taking him out because he's the obvious <laughs> one. Um, I worked with Pat O'Sullivan, who was our chairman for a while. He's just an amazing guy. He's been on the car sales board for a number of years, ran Channel 9 for a number of years, ran Optus, uh, CFO Optus previous to that. Incredibly ethical guy, incredible, incredibly smart guy, uh, incredibly generous guy. Now, we spent 70% of time doing charitable benches so he's a guy who who just from a, a holistic uh a holistic perspective I really look up to as, as someone who 
is, is a really great guy in business. Uh, and it, obviously I'm critical of a lot of CEOs out there, but there's a lot of great ones as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at Andrew Bass from Seek, look at Greg Roebuck from Car Sales, yep. both fantastic guys, um, done an amazing job with their respective businesses and operated really ethically throughout. Mm-hmm. So there's, there are some, definitely some, some good people out there, um, but I often tend to take a somewhat dim view of executives who get paid 15 million bucks a year for managing someone else's money yeah. and taking no personal risk. Yeah, I can imagine that not resonating with you based on based on all that I know about you. I was intrigued to learn as well that you have run two barefoot marathons. Can you talk to me about what prompted you to run two barefoot marathons? Uh, well, I, was, I used to run a bit and I got, got Achilles problems and ITV issues. So we read, read Born to Run um, and my wife actually started running barefoot, stopped it after about a month because she got a few, bit of pain. I didn't just get going. So it's been about six years now. Um, haven't run a marathon for a few years, done a few halves lately, so do the half in a couple of weeks. It's tough doing it running at this time of year because yeah. it's about two or three, your feet start freezing. I was going to say you'd get numb feet almost. Yeah, that becomes a risk factor. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, if, numb, if you get numb feet and you step on something, you can't feel it, which is quite good. Yeah, so you need to size yourself. But uh, it has allowed me to run bigger distance I otherwise could have. So but a lot of people would say, oh, I can't run it. I'm injured at the moment. I can't run anymore because I'm injured. I said, I want to run barefoot. Oh, I couldn't run barefoot. I get injured. So it's always quite funny to hear people. But ultimately, people never used to have shoes till 50 years ago. True. Nike started changing the way people run. So it's unusual, but I think that's been pretty effective and hopefully more people do it. You mentioned that you're someone who's who's quite openly critical in your writing around some of how businesses do things and probably not just confined to business. I imagine yeah. government cops comes in there every now and again. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, you know, you're someone who who has the opportunity to lead in a different way in the business that you're you're running at Luxury Escapes. What do you think needs to change about how we work and how we lead? <sighs> Um, I know that's kind of generalising about business, but yeah, when you look at kind of, I think, phenomenal. I think it stretches to, to how we incentivise managers. And if you're talking public companies, forget private's a bit more difficult. But doing public companies and taking a genuine long-term view, which is almost impossible the way executives are remunerated, it really comes down to you said people respond to incentives. So we set incentives to people to make as much. We set incentives to a bank CEO to make as much money as possible. They're going to lend irresponsibly and create a property bubble. Which mm. So. How do we, I think the question is how do we create, I think executive pay completely needs to be rethought and it should be more than a million bucks really for anyone. It makes no sense that big companies, if you run a big company, you get paid more. If you run a big company, it's probably easier than running a small company. So why you get paid more? You've got all these people making, doing that, doing the work for you. It's never made any sense to me. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think overall it's, it's how do we, and this is, and I've traditionally been from the conservative side of politics, so, but it's, you sort of become so disillusioned with how conservatives now no longer the party of business, it's the party of cronies and the party of, of, of people who have money already, a party, a party of privilege. It's now basically part of the old versus, versus, the, versus the young with how between the bubbles and the, the way the Australian economy and other economies have, have become. Um, so I think there's a significant realignment of, of how people are paid and how, how the tax system works going on to the government. We, we tax people, we don't tax people Someone can own a house that goes up in value fifty million dollars and pay sending tax, but you can you can work for fifty thousand dollars and pay tax. So it doesn't make a huge amount of sense the way our our economy works, just incentivizing the wrong things. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think that's a you know we respond to incentives, and I think sometimes there's a you know we can come out and say things like, okay, we need to be innovative and we need to start you know doing things differently, and you, nothing in the business changes, and you know people pull their hair out and go, why isn't that that's happening? And you go, well, you've got to look at kind of almost the the unconscious 
operating rhythm of the business. And you find out half the time that what's in a KPI list is completely disincentivizing anyone from putting a foot out of line and taking a risk because lo and behold, they won't meet their targets. They won't get their bonus, you know? And so we're almost suspended in this reality by virtue of the fact we don't have a consciousness around what we're incentivizing and what we're not. And does that serve the end outcome we're working towards? I think, and taking that point of view, I generally don't like big businesses because that's how they operate. There's, if you look at for most people working in a big business, if you take a chance to get it wrong, you get five, but you're getting no credit. Mm. So that's just the nature of, and Australia is a country now of duopolies and oligopolies, really, or monopolies, uh, from power to supermarkets to, to whatnot. So it encourages that sort of behaviour. And I hate dealing with big companies. Um, I love dealing with small companies, startup companies, growing businesses. Uh, and, we've, and Australia's become an insulated country of, of big business. That, mm. And somehow the Liberal Party has become a party of big business, not a party of actual business, not the party of shells, the party of CEOs and the business council and all these guys who don't really add any value to anyone other than themselves. Final question I've got for you, because I'm so grateful for the, the time that you've spent with us today. We love to ask all of our guests, if you could leave our listeners with a call to action, what would you like to encourage them to, to go and do after listening to this podcast? Um, be more sceptical. I think it's probably the... Uh, it's all the obvious stuff of, of, of doing more good stuff and help other people, but I think it's be more sceptical of common truths uh, and don't necessarily believe things. And, and just because a big business is big doesn't mean it's good. And just because a CEO is wealthy doesn't mean he's the right person. And, and um, just be curious, be sceptical and, and try new things. I love that. I've asked that question, I don't know how many times now, and I've never had the same answer. And we certainly yeah. haven't had to be sceptical. And I think at a time where you know, where we've all of a sudden got, you know, alternative facts and, you know, these questions and this, well, really assault on the truth. Um, arguably that's, you know, never been more important having that healthy scepticism, not paranoia, but healthy scepticism. <laughs> well, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time out. We really appreciate the generosity um, with which you've shared. And I know that there'll be so many entrepreneurs and leaders in general that have listened to what you've shared that are going to take a lot from it. So thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me. Thank <laughs> you.